earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Today's part three in our This Means War series. And as I've said, we're taking a sober look at a spiritual warfare and creating a spiritual warfare primer. The podcasts are accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Part three is called, Are We Dressed to Kill?, And we'll be digging into a portion of Ephesians 6. But before we do, I'm curious if you've heard the expression, use the right tool for the job. I remember hearing that comment a lot from my dad when I was growing up. My dad went from working as a carpenter for another company to starting his own business as a building contractor. During high school, I worked the summers with him and learned a lot about tools and using the right tool for the job. It seems to me, no matter the profession, that advice still applies. I have a friend who works for a company that deals in hardwoods, countertops, and laminates. What if he doesn't use the right tool for the job? The result may be an inferior product. I have another friend who's a welder and does metalworking. What if he didn't use the right tool for the job? The result could be a safety hazard to the end user or himself if he didn't wear his mask or eye shield. Well, friends, I've pondered this thought. When it comes to the human realm and earthly professions, it seems very important to know about and to use the right tools for the job. Amen? That thought led me to consider this question in the supernatural realm, the spirit world, if you will. Why, as Christ followers, do we often fail to think it's important to know about and use the right tools for the job? Now, before we go on, it's important we review just what the job is. Last time, we distilled the job down to one sentence, derived from the second half of 1 John 3, eight, which says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Another translation says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Here, friends, John uses a broad word for destroy. It carries the meanings of destroy as in demolishing a building, dissolve or melt, make void, in other words, do away with, loosen, unbind or untie, even set prisoners free. Perhaps in our context we could say, set those free who've been imprisoned by the devil's grip. You see, friends, we Christ followers don't often view the gospel's effect as two-pronged. First, as negating or nullifying or destroying the works of the devil. And second, as introducing salvation or new life, forgiveness, and hope of eternity with God to people around us. 
Let's be honest and transparent for a moment, okay? How many of us have pretty much understood that sharing the gospel means helping people see that Jesus is their Savior and that they need to personally receive or accept him as such? Well, that wouldn't be wrong, but it would only be one prong in the gospel's two-pronged work. Listen to how this less-considered second prong of the gospel is presented in the New Testament. Colossians 1.13 says, For he, God the Father, has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into, or transferred us to, the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. 2 Timothy 2.24-26 says, The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare or trap of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Friends, this two-pronged work of the gospel is evident in Jesus' calling and sending out of his first disciples. Matthew 4.19 says, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, or people. So this is one prong of the gospel's work. But we can't overlook what happens six chapters later when Jesus actually sends his disciples out. Matthew 10.1 says, And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority, or power, over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. The KJ translators chose to use a stronger English word here. He gave them power against unclean spirits. Now, friends, while that word against is not actually part of the meaning, I believe the KJ translators understood the nature of spiritual warfare, that it's one foe against another. One well-known hymn puts it this way, Christ the royal master leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go, onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus, going on before. The parallel account in Luke 9, 1 and 2 strengthens this idea of the gospel's two-pronged work. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Notice, friends, that the scriptures are careful to not give one primary importance over the other. It's not preaching the kingdom of God versus rescuing people from the grips of the kingdom of Satan. Both occur when the good news, in other words, the message of salvation, is proclaimed. It's as if one automatically becomes the byproduct of the other. And in this process, people are then transferred from the kingdom of darkness, ruled by Satan, to the kingdom of God's Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Friends, it's sad that people in general don't realize what kingdom they've been duped into uniting with. But even that shouldn't surprise us. After all, Paul forewarned us, didn't he? 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel. 
Friends, my hope is that from this day on, you will not just see people around you as lost, but as lost and held captive by the devil to do his will. Well, the Christ, the royal master, leading us against our foe, let's go forward in the battle and look at Second Corinthians ten three through 5 But before we do, here's a few insightful comments by Christ followers past and present. Chuck Swindoll said, Our adversary is a master strategist, forever fogging up our minds with smoke screens. Thomas Akempis, Christian mystic who lived in the 1400s, wrote, The devil never sleeps, and your flesh is very much alive. Prepare yourself for battle. Surrounding you are enemies that never rest. John Milton, English poet best known for his book, Paradise Lost defined the devil this way. Devil, the strongest and fiercest spirit that fought in heaven, now fiercer by despair. Friends, a fair and legitimate question we should be asking ourselves is, how do we prepare for battle against such a foe? Martin Luther, hymn writer and theologian, alerts us to the reality of spiritual warfare in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. You probably know it. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Another verse says, And though this world with demons filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So how do we prepare for battle against such a fierce foe? Well, Last time I shared that having a firm grasp on spiritual warfare must at least begin with these two things, knowing our enemy and knowing ourselves. Today, friends, I'm going to add a third thing, knowing our weaponry. And more specifically, not just knowing the weapons themselves, but knowing the storehouse where we can get these weapons Okay, here's 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, and I'm going to share two modern language translations, which I believe bring out the meaning of the original in a vivid and picturesque way. First, we are human, but we don't wage war with human plans and methods. We use God's mighty weapons, not mere worldly weapons, to knock down devil's strongholds. But these weapons, we break down every proud argument that keeps people from knowing God. With these weapons, we conquer their rebellious ideas, and we teach them to obey Christ. And second, we do live in the world, but we do not fight in the same way the world fights. We fight with weapons that are different from those the world uses. Our weapons have power from God that can destroy the enemy's strong places. We destroy people's arguments and every proud thing that raises itself against the knowledge of God. We capture every thought and make it give up and obey Christ. Friends, notice the military language here? Capture and give up or surrender. Now, when Jesus called his first disciples saying, 
follow me and I will make you fishers of men, just maybe behind that commission lies the idea of capturing people from the devil's kingdom and leading them to a place where they surrender themselves to God's kingdom. Friends, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 10 make us privy to the banner Satan waves as he leads his demons marching on to war. And the banner is hinted at by the phrase, We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, as another translation puts it. The New Testament word used here can mean imaginations, speculations, thoughts, reasonings. And since these are raised up against the knowledge of the one true God, they're to be understood in a negative sense. In other words, friends, these imaginations, these speculations, thoughts, and reasonings work in opposition to, they combat, they contest, they obstruct, they resist and thwart all attempts to spread the knowledge of God. Oh, but we don't see that going on in our world today, do we? Not in the United States. Friends, Satan and his demon militia basically have one agenda to inspire and promote atheism. In other words, godlessness, which translates to unbridled sin in the world. For without God's point of view, we have no ethical guardrails, no ethical compass. It becomes a free-for-all. Anything goes. And in so doing, Satan achieves his number one objective, recruiting human beings to join his rebellion against God. Oswald Chambers said, The devil is a bully, but when we stand in the armor of God, he cannot harm us. If we tackle him in our own strength, we're soon done for. But if we stand with the strength and courage of God, he cannot gain one inch of way at all. You've probably noticed, friends, that the phrase armor of God is repeated in Scripture. In fact, it was hinted at in 2 Corinthians 10.4, and we didn't even realize it. Verse 4 begins with, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. Interestingly, this word for weapons means armor, instrument, weapon, or tools for war. So, just as in human warfare, in spiritual warfare, it's just as important to know and use the right tool or tools for the job. And so, friends, the importance of knowing our weaponry And thankfully, the scriptures don't leave us in the dark on the weaponry available to us in the supernatural realm or the realm of the spirit, capital S. I can't think of two portions of scripture better fitted for giving us the best basic training on the subject of spiritual warfare than 2 Corinthians 10 and Ephesians 6. So let's add Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 to our arsenal. And friends, I'm going to read this portion without interruption because it's chock full of powerful insights. So fasten your seatbelts and listen intently. From now on, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground.
ground, and after you have done everything, to stand, stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Friends, it's probably common knowledge among us Christ followers that Paul was in prison and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit was enabled to draw a comparison between the armor of a Roman soldier and the spiritual armor of a Christian. But I wonder if any of us realize that the Holy Spirit had a bigger picture in mind. Many of us are probably not aware that the parts of a Roman soldier's armor also parallel aspects of God himself, as pictured in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. You see, friends, the reality is we're not just putting on physical things. We're actually putting on God or putting on Christ. In other words, their very own character qualities. Remember now, friends, the words put on are equivalent to clothe yourselves. This phrase seems to be a favorite of Paul and Peter. In addition to Ephesians 4, there's Galatians 3.27, which says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And being baptized into Christ here carries the understanding that one has personally identified oneself with Christ. One is completely covered by Christ like a Roman garment and so closely identified with him that our experiences that we experience eternal life through him. In 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. The first century cultural picture here, friends, is that we basically disrobe and re-robe with a new garment. In other words, we take off the old garment of sin that identified us as non-believers and now put on the new garment of Jesus, which identifies us with his character qualities. In this case, humility. In Romans thirteen twelve through 14, Paul calls the armor where to put on the armor of light. He says, the night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on or clothe ourselves with the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul refers to the weapons or armor of righteousness. Friends, here are some references in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, that point to the character qualities of God himself. I believe the Holy Spirit drew Paul's mind to recall these parts that paralleled God. 
the armor parts of a Roman soldier in Ephesians 6 have direct parallels to Isaiah and the Psalms. For instance, the belt of truth is found in Isaiah 11.5. The breastplate of righteousness is found in Isaiah 59.17. The feet fitted a certain way is found in Isaiah 52.7. The shield is found in numerous psalms, particularly Psalm 115, verse 11, and Psalm 144, verses 1 and 2. The helmet of salvation is found in Isaiah 59:17. The sword, as representing God's word, is found in many places in the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah 49, 2. God's word as a weapon against falsehood or disobedience may be seen in Psalm 119, verses 9 through 11, and Proverbs 7, 1 through 5. Friends, the New Testament writers also understood this aspect of God's word and how it cuts to the heart. We see this in Acts 2.37 and Hebrews 4.12. Acts 2.37 says, after Peter's sermon, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what shall we do? Peter then tells them to repent. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Friends, one of my favorite songs that exhorts us to stand with our armor on is the 2003 song Stand by Petra. Here's some of the lyrics. Stand, having done all this, stand, with emphasis. Stand, no analysis. Even when you don't understand, stand, put your armor on. Stand on the foundation, stand, rely on the strength that has always been there. And now you stand firm, but not on your own terms. We have no power all alone, but you can feel safe there with your shield of faith. The inner strength in you has grown, and when you draw your sword, the enemy is fair game. We're more than conquerors in Jesus' name, so take a stand. Stand all alone if there's no one around you. Stand on your own. Stand through the night. Wait for the morning to bring you the strength to finish the fight. Stand up tall. Stand or fall. Stand your ground. Don't stand down. Stand connected. Stand corrected, stand in faith, stand elected, stand. Friends, Robert South, who lived in the mid-1600s, said, He who will fight the devil with his own weapons must not wonder if he finds himself an overmatch. Well, friends, I'd like to restate and reinforce the truth of a scripture portion I read earlier, but this time from the NEB, the New English Bible Translation, which is a fresh and vivid way of articulating Romans thirteen twelve through 14. It is far on in the night. Day is near. Let us therefore throw off the deeds of darkness and put on our armor as soldiers of the light. Let us behave with decency as befits the day, not reveling or drunkenness, no sexual immorality, no quarrels or jealousies. Let Christ Jesus himself be the armor that you wear. 
give no more thought to satisfying its bodily appetites. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me and share your feedback. Keep that feedback coming. I'm enjoying reading it. And remember, friends, podcasts of A Word from the Word can be accessed at faithtalk1360.com. That's faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And feel free to share these podcasts with family or friends who may be touched, blessed, or even challenged by these teachings. And keep in mind, friends, that A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program. If it's blessing you, please join the support team. Your faithful and sacrificial generosity is keeping this program on the air. Email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with A Word from the Word. Friends, If you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at awordfromtheword at minister.com. That's awordfromtheword at minister.com.